Full Service Radio programming is available on our website, fullserviceradio.org, and as a podcast, thanks to Simplecast. For more information, visit simplecast.com. Tune in to Full Service Radio. Full Service Radio. Full Service. Full Service. Full Service. Full Service Radio. Awesome. Great to be back here. Uh, thanks for joining us at Origins, a conversation about where our food is coming from and hopefully where it is going. I'm joined today uh, by Nazirak Aman, um, uh, a figure in our food system here that I have uh, first knew almost, um, I think, mythically as the Purple Man. I first got to know uh, about you, Nazirak, from um, Heinz, of course. Started hearing about uh, the work you were doing with rice. Um, but, um, hey, thanks for being here. Thanks All right. for coming in. It's great to have you. Um, I guess I first have to ask you about the color purple. So, yeah, uh, purple for us, um, we wear a lot of purple. We're around a lot of purple. Uh, Purple for us is a a color that represents peace beyond gain or loss. So whether you have everything or you have nothing, you're content with your circumstances. Well, that... (laughs) That's, I mean, for somebody that I've known for a while, but I, I'm so excited to have this conversation. You're actually drinking purple. Is there a connection here with the purple um, <laughs> no, kombucha? No, I had nothing all right, to do okay, with it. Okay, that's just, all right, very cool. Um, t- so uh, one of the reasons I'm excited to talk to you is about the fact that you grow rice. Yes. And small grains in the Mid-Atlantic is something that I've been uh, excited about for a long time. It's, it's starting to have a, resur- a resurgence because of folks like you and Heinz. Can you tell me a little bit, of, little bit about the farming that you're doing? Right. So, you know, we, we, uh, Purple Mountain Organics, we started back in, I think, 2004. And, um, I started just, you know, I'm a naturopathic doctor, I'm an acupuncturist, practice Chinese medicine. And as part of my practice, um, you know, all the patients that come in, uh, we put them on a detox diet. And so, how the, the, and I'm also a part of a community. So with the community I'm a part of, our basic philosophy is self-reliance, which means we make an effort to grow as much of the food that we eat uh, for ourselves as we can. So, and for, for many years, we would grow all these vegetables and potatoes and starches, which wouldn't store over the winter. And then we end up turning orange in the winter from eating carrots and sweet potatoes and whatever we could grow. And so... Um, let me just go back and forth. So back around 2004, we would do these cooking classes. Everyone that comes in, we pretty much put them on a detox diet, which is an introduction to whole foods, where we get rid of all the processed stuff and, and really introduce people to clean diets. So and we do these cooking classes where people would come over to our home in Tacoma Park. And I had a, my yard was basically a, an urban garden farm kind of thing so people would come outside pick the food then go in the house and then cook the food so many people just hadn't seen vegetables like wow that's how a carrot looks in the ground or that's how broccoli grows or and so they started asking us to help them grow food and so from that we started with um 
found out about walk behind tractors mm -hmm. and uh <laughs> i started doing all these urban farming projects so walker jones which is now i think the k street uh farm uh common uh good city farm we started all them off with with uh with you know these were grant projects where people got money but didn't really have the skill so we came in with the skill got them started and then um you know in the winter time we sell tools all these uh mostly dutch and german tools but we sell a lot of quality hand tools at the uh, organic farming conferences in the region and we were down in north carolina uh, probably around 2010 and i saw uh, a young man present uh, a presentation about growing rice. He got a SARE grant down there and they were growing rice and it was a flooded uh, rice paddy that they were working with with the koshihikari, a Japanese rice. Uh -huh. And uh, in their second year, the rains didn't come so they had to seed it by hand and they put a drip tape line on it. And so in the end, the, the, the rice that he grew with the drip tape did better for them than the stuff that they had in the patty. So I was like, hey, I could do that. And so that was sort of the, the, the bling. That, that was the moment, right. <laughs> you know, and my buddy Hines, the first time I called him, you know, he didn't even give me the time of day. You know, I told him <laughs> what I was doing and uh, told him we were doing two acres. And he was like, well, how many people are you? I was like, well, it's me and my family. He's like, well, who's picking it all? <laughs> I was like, Wow. <laughs> And it was basically like, click. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was like, wow. So it wasn't until, I don't know, maybe a year later that he actually, um, somebody else told him about what we were doing. And in the end, he sort of gave me some attention. So we built a beautiful relationship and friendship from that. So, but for me, the rice production for me personally was a way for us to get grains into our diet that we were actually able to grow. And then we started experimenting. So we wrote a grant with uh, UDC and the Firebird Farm out in Bellsville, Maryland. Uh, its causes is their department. So UDC causes, uh, we wrote a grant, which was a USDA NIFA grant, which was growing dryland rice using uh, biodegradable mulch uh, in, in drip tape. And so... So like Biotella? Like a yeah, on the Biotella. Uh -huh. So that was our first grant that we actually we wrote a SARE grant and SARE, uh, we were like number 25 out of they gave 24 and they were like, well, we would have given you the grant if we'd have understood your budget. So uh, what's you, SARE again? SARE is the uh, shoot <laughs> sustainable agriculture research something. Uh -huh. And uh, so they're basically a group that does research for farmers, for organic farmers in particular, to get them to, to do better in whatever region they're in. So there's SARE, Northeast, Southeast, all these different SARE associations. So SARE uh, gave us the feedback we needed, but we had someone from the USDA looked at the grant and they were like, hey, this is a good idea. And so it got funded um, as a, a NIFA grant, which is like a seed grant for we the original SARE grant was for fifteen thousand dollars and we ended up getting a seventy five thousand dollar three year uh grant through the USDA. So that was how we got our start with the rice. And then Heinz, when we came back, I we rewrote the SARE grant as a variety trial. So the uh, the first grant we, that we did was to um develop 
the the lay the foundation in terms of methodology uh-huh. like how to do it can it be done using yes. this drip tape and uh-huh. and Heinz at the time he was averaging about 1700 pounds per acre and so with the grant I was able to I, I, I was really interested in it I grew up uh, down in Louisiana and down there, like rice is just, you know, it's part of pretty much every meal that you eat at least twice a day. And so I grew up maybe 20 miles from the uh, Louisiana Rice Research, LSU's Rice Research Center. So I was down there um, and I went to visit them. And one of the men uh, um, took me aside. Carl Dishler was his name. Um, and he, he showed me what they did. And he described to me the process. They had one little dryland field that he kind of joked about. But I took everything he said seriously. And rice is a crop. Um, for one, rice can, it breeds. So, you know, the, the reason they flood the patties is because of weeds. Okay, right, so right, that's right. the way that they can do weed control is to flood patties. But when you flood a field you create what's called a reduction reaction. So that means you take all of the oxygen out of the environment, and when you do that, all of your phosphorus and all of your potassium becomes available to the plant. And so the only thing you have to worry about is nitrogen mobilization. Nitrogen will go with the water, but you don't have to worry about phosphorus and potassium, which gives you those high yields. So around the world, um, dryland rice production is mostly in... Brazil, because when you go to Brazil, they do um, these these forest clear cuts of the rainforest. So the first crop that they come in with is rice, because rice is a very versatile crop. So it can be grown anywhere from the mangroves all the way up to like fourteen thousand feet elevation. But for the the the, the um, Rice can tolerate a pH as low as four. So when they clear cut those forests, it's a really low pH. So they come first with the rice crop. So that's where you have a lot of dryland rice production. And then in Asia, up in the hills, you know, everyone from Thailand to China, they all have sort of dryland rice producing regions. So the difference between a flooded paddy and a dryland paddy is that you, you get about half of the yield is a flooded paddy. Um, just because of that difference in nit- in phosphorus and and uh, potassium that becomes available, the flooded paddy gives you the higher yield. Yes, so flooded paddy gives you a higher yield. So, so in America, the average yield of rice is about eight thousand pounds per acre. We've been able to with our method. Once I went down the LSU and he described. Are me, these flooded? Is that a flooded? Yeah, number? that's mostly flooded. Uh-huh. They're they're all of the state associations. Their research purpose is for rice production, and rice production is all about like quantity for them. It's mm-hmm. not quality. So the they he showed me that if you can get the field saturated before rice, the plants go to fertilization. Then you get your yield. So like with Heinz, uh, some of the varieties that he were doing, like the Koshiakari, immediately once we realized, you know, he was watering based on um, his farm, consideration of the whole farm. Like we watered the tomatoes yesterday. Right. We need to water the rice today, but I can't water it tomorrow. That's not how it works when you grow rice. If you really want to get the yield, you have to keep the field saturated during that fertilization period. So once he started doing that, 
that doubled his yield from, I think with the Koshiakari, we averaged around 3,500 pounds per acre. And then with the variety trial, we were able to find varieties like the Blue Bonnet, the Hmong Sticky, um, some of these, the Carolina Gold that, that yield almost like 5,000 pounds per acre. So we're a little bit more than half. We're, yeah, two-thirds of the yield we're getting with some of the varieties that we're growing in this area using dryland methods. And organic practices as well? Yeah, organic practices. You know, the biotello is the one thing that keeps us from being organic. And interestingly, you know, organic farmers can put plastic in their fields and take it up. Uh, the biotello is a corn-based um, material. And I'm sure there's some petrochemicals involved in the process, but it biodegrades in the field. But it's not used for certified organics. So. But it but it is in Europe. Yes, it's right. in Europe and in Canada. For certified organic there, yes. but not here. Right, so and it's he, a whole political thing. And, right. you know, I, we know farmers in this area that have given up their organic certification just because, so that they can use the, the biotello. So for me, it's really like, you know, going beyond organics into what makes sense um, in terms of growing. Like, you know, do you stock up this plastic that when you take it out of the field there's nowhere for it to go but to a landfill or into the oceans you know when you look at uh, i was reading something about the mediterranean and all the plastic in the mediterranean from uh and you know the majority of it is from like the the growing areas up in europe F from plastic mulch from plastic mulch and greenhouse plastic they just throw it in the water so, you know, we have, to, we have to do what we can and we have to, like, stop some of these disconnects. Here we are, okay, let's grow some organic food. And, you know, when I was in India um, a few years ago, I noticed, like, the disconnect in the, the religious aspect of things where you have, you know, these Brahmins doing these really elaborate rituals on the side of the Ganges, the sacred river, and... They would like put these beautiful flowers in the river and send them off, and then they take the plastic bags that they had just put the flowers, took the flowers out of, and throw right. them in the water. It's like, and they say, "Well, it's Maya, you know, it's all an illusion, so it doesn't matter, you know." And I don't think that's sustainable. I think, you know, ultimately we're poisoning ourselves, and if you poison the oceans, you know, it's going to come back to us for sure. So, um, how much rice are you growing now? So we've only, you know, with the rice, it's very labor intensive. Um, how, how do you harvest it? Do you? I have combines. You know, uh -huh. we started off with, um, when we first did the grant project, we had no idea of how we were going to harvest. Right. So we were like, you know, we're just going to take some, some sickles and harvest it all by hand. And so I was looking around for a way to, to, to uh, thresh it. So right. you reap it, that's cutting it and then threshing it is getting the grain off of the stock and so a combine is the action of reaping and threshing so we were going to buy a thresher and i in america there's there's really america divested away from small farm equipment back in the 40s and so all of the small grain process, processing equipment most of it can only be found in university research departments um, because of the commodity crop system that grains are under. And so I called around, and there was a used research equipment place, and, you know, this man finally called me back, and he was like, look, I don't have a thresher, 
but I do have a small combine and I think it'll work for you. And, you know, I like what you're doing. I like the concept. So I'll just give it to you at my cost. And so we end up getting a, a small Massey Ferguson combine and it's, it's a universal combine, but we would lose quite a bit of grain uh, with that one. And so we switched over last year. I ended up striking a, you know, I was looking on Alibaba and I ended up striking a conversation with a, a who's now my Japanese friend, Motoki. <laughs> and, uh, and we were able to, uh, to, to buy a Japanese combine. And rice combine. Yes. Yeah, rice so specific? The, yes. It, the one that I have now is rice specific, and we're hoping to get one in this year that is like a multi-purpose grain combine. And so, but, you know, we've established relationships with the Japanese, with a couple Japanese companies where we're importing rice equipment. Uh, so, like... Um, Opie was just telling me he came back from, from South Carolina this year. We sold uh, a couple hullers and some other rice processing equipment to a couple farmers who were growing the Carolina gold down there. And, um, you know, the rice world is a pretty small world. And one of the people that we met is a lady. Her name is Anna McClung. And she's in charge of uh, what's called the GRIN, which is basically the seed bank uh, in America. But she's in charge of the GRIN uh, the, the rice variety supply for the seed bank for rice in the U.S. So the difference, she runs, she's at the Stuttgart, uh, Arkansas, USDA rice research facility. So the difference between them and the state associations is, is that their, their mission is quality. So she's in it for quality and taste, and they're in it for quantity. Uh-huh. And so her whole goal is to preserve the, the uh, you know, the, the best of the rice. And so when she figured out what we were doing, right, so the first year we kind of talked to her and, you know, it's a novelty. Oh, you uh -huh. look different. You're growing rice. <laughs> she, she looked at me and she gave me immediately, she was like, I got this purple rice I want you to try. <laughs> <laughs> so that was beautiful. And, uh, and we tried it, but it was a low-yielding variety. But what she did was... Um, in our second year, we, you know, I just Googled like rice seed. And if you notice, like you can't find rice seed. Um, we, the reason we use koshiakari, which is the Japanese rice, was because it was readily available. The reason we used the borskian, which is a, a Russian variety rice, it's a Ukrainian variety rice, was because we could find the seed. And, but you can't just, you know, look for rice and, and it come up like the varieties they grow here. And so I was Googling and I found this, this dryland rice from China. So I just like, okay, bye. <laughs> and so I bought it and we grew it. And um, so Anna McClung, she asked me, she's like, hey, you got any of that Duborskian rice? Can you send me a pound? There, I know another farmer who wants some. And so we sent her a pound and then I sent her a pound of the, the HD502, the, the, the Chinese variety of rice. And uh, she immediately sent us an email, and she was like, hey, don't you know importing rice is illegal? <laughs> I was like, oops. <laughs> she was like, and I'm the sheriff. <laughs> I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> so she was like, look, whatever you need, you tell me the qualities that you're looking for, and I will source them for you. So at that point, she opened up to us with, you know, the, the, some really nice varieties of rice that she thought would grow well for the reason. And it wasn't like we didn't ask her for it the first time, but she really, once she saw that we were serious, she really like, 
open up the variety. So when was that? Uh, that was in 2016. So last year we grew like I just brought for you all today a, a variety called Australia, which is a it's a Colombian variety from South America. It's one of the um, it's similar to the Dvorskian, but it has a lot higher yield um, to it. And it's a long grain variety. So with rice, you have the season. So the, the short grain rices tend to be shorter seasons and the long grain rices tend to be longer seasons. And uh, you have uh, days to fertilization, uh, which can be different on the plant. So in this area, we're limited by, um, you know, our, our grow season. So when you start talking about Carolina goal, you know, it's a hit or miss. You can get a good year when, you know, you can get it out in the field. But if you have cool temperatures in the summertime or a cool fall, it may not uh, mature in the field. So you're taking a risk by growing the Carolina goals and the, the blue bonnets and some of these longer grain, uh, longer season rices. So what we're looking for is a short season high yielding rice so the less time that it's in the field the less stuff that we have to deal with so our main uh you know we've had like as as past the rice think bug you know the first rice crop that we grew like in the first week of a rice plant heading in the field we had rice think bugs we were like, where did they come from like how did they find it and it turns There's a specific <laughs> stink bug for rice. Yes, oh, and they, they found it. It's like they came all the way here just for, for our little field. Uh. So, so they found us. And, um, but the birds are, are uh, sort of one of the main uh, predators or pests that we deal with. So the last time, we've had years when uh, there was no bird pressure. So the birds weren't there. We had a beautiful harvest. The second year... I uh, was playing around with the combine, getting it ready. I get so excited and worked up, like, finally it's harvest time. And on the first row, I forgot to, um, to hook up the pipe to the combine to, the, to go up to the bin. And so Is that a pull behind or is it a... You... No, I, I have... Uh, it was a Massey, so it was a standalone. Gotcha. Yeah, all of the ones I have are standalone. Um, you know, Heinz, I've tried to sort of convince him on the standalone, and he's like, no, I want a combine that has, you know, like, that I can use, and I just want one engine on my farm, and, like, whatever. <laughs> like, it's, a, it's a conversation with Heinz. <laughs> yeah. Why don't we get the one, and then we go back and forth, like, yours does this better, mine does that better. Like, his combine comes out of the field with a cleaner uh, grain finished product but he has all of the rice processing equipment or the, all the grain cleaning equipment so he doesn't need it to come out so right. i can get in there quicker and do a, a, a faster harvest than he can um and still get all of the grain out of the field and, but you know so it goes back and forth between you know what's the better deal and and things like that what uh so we talked you talked about reaping and threshing how about hulling so hulling is the the other step so the rice has a hull on it and then so you haul rice and then when you haul rice you get brown rice and then to get white rice you have to basically take the the um the the basically you have to mill it um i can't think of the the part what do you take off when you so so anyway you 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 mill it um and then once you mill it you get the the, the bran so you take right, the bran right, off right. and then then you can uh then you get white rice do you do, you do white rice or do you just no, I'm a brown rice yeah. man. Yeah. 
uh, we kind of land that way. I mean, what do you lose? I mean, percentage-wise, you lose a... Well, the beauty of rice and fresh rice is that rice loses about 50% of its nutritional value after about eight weeks of after you hull it. So there's a market for fresh rice. Um, and, of course, the taste, you know, when it's fresh. So we try to promote, you know, like we haul to order. So, you know, it's, it's stored in the, um, in the hull until we at, you know, below 60 degrees in a, a low humidity situation until we can uh, hull it. And uh, that preserves the integrity and the nutritional value. And then, you know, we haul to order. And uh, so, yeah. And then mostly it's been, you know, we've gotten some requests for white rice, but we don't really, yeah, it's so valuable to us. You know, we're growing we're, so we're limited. The difference between uh, we've tried, uh, we have water wheel transplanters and ways. So our whole thing was, can we grow rice using common equipment that most farmers have already at their farm? And the answer is yes. So we use a, a general, you know, uh, tool that like we use a spader. And once we spade, we use our plastic layer. And then once we use a plastic layer, we use a water wheel transplanter. And so with the water wheel transplanter, it makes a big hole in the plastic and the rice is a small plant. So uh, if you have a fuel with a high weed pressure, it's better to just poke a small hole and then have that one rice plant sticking out of the small hole. And so we've gone from, from water wheel transplanting to a really tedious uh, process of planting by hand. Hand so, transplant. So, yeah, so we hand transplant. This year we hand transplanted like an acre and a half. And so that's what we're working with. And then I have two plots. I'm always experimenting. So I'm trying to, I have a field of uh, the Australia that's uh, in clover. So I had a clover cover crop and, and um, I kind of tilted just a bit, cut up the ground and I, I seeded it with the Australia, hoping that the Australia is gonna come up and give me a nice crop. It might be a, like a poor, a, a not a high yield harvest, but if we can get anything <laughs> with it, without weeding, then we're good. And then you didn't turn the clover over; you put it in the clover. I put it in the. Cl I just chopped the ground up so I can get a little. You know, the rice can have something uh -huh. to catch on to, and then it's going to grow. It's a low-growing clover. The first year that we did the project, what we used to control the weeds in the middle was we when we uh, planted the rice, we seeded clover into the middles, and that did so well. Um, Heinz can't do it because he has really, really high weed pressure. Um, but we can do it on the farm that we're, we've been working on. And so this year we, yeah, we seeded the clover. The clover is actually a clover crop that overwintered. And then I just like etched the ground a little bit so that the rice can take. So we're, there's some rice coming up. So the clover should stay low and the rice should, you know, we should be able to get it and harvest it. How's it looking? It's looking good. <laughs> yeah. So I want to I shift a little bit, uh, and I love the conversation about rice, but I want to connect back to your work as a practitioner. Right. And something that I'm always trying to, to, to make the connection between the food that we eat, our health, right. and, the, and the health of the planet. You're someone that kind of lives this. Right. So, you know, I'm a, I tell people my medical career began when I was like 11 years old, right? I, was, um, I grew up in the South, and in, in, uh, in, uh, I was... I used to have this skateboard that I rode everywhere, and I, I walked out the door of my house one day without my skateboard. And 
I ended up, in the end, I, I walked out into the street and got hit by a car. And, um, and so I remember on the scene, like, my mom, somebody ran and got my mom. My mom came. She took a look at me and, like, passed out. <laughs> and then right after that, I remember them, like, pulling me up, and it hurt really bad. And I get to the hospital, and, uh, and this doctor comes in, and he yells out, where's that little nigger? that ran into my son's car. And I was like, whoa, I can't run. Get him away from me. Like, he's no... So, and at the time, I was doing a social studies project. It was called Negroes on the Road to Freedom. And it went all the way to the state level. I was in fifth grade. And, uh, and I won the, the elementary division. And they asked me, you know, what do you want to do when you grow up? And I said, you know, I want to be a medic. And I want to be a medic because I told him the situation. I was like, people. That story. Sh- yeah. I said, people should never have to. I don't want anybody else to be put in that situation. And so when I got to college, I started off, I worked as a medic for the city of New Orleans back in the late 80s during the whole crack epidemic. And I got my feel. I was like, I'm, I'm done. I went to Xavier, which is a, it's a black Catholic university, which gets more black people into medical school than any other university. But after my whole like, EMT experience in the streets, I was, I was really done with Western medicine. And I remember having uh, hemorrhoids. And my father was like, son, all you got to do is eat more fiber, <laughs> you know, like eat more oatmeal. So, but what that meant to me was I started changing my diet. I started eating brown rice. I started, the migraines I had went away. Uh, the hemorrhoids went away. All of my problems went away once I changed my diet. And so, as part of the community that I joined, the organic philosophy came in and the holistic. So, I had had all of the, the, the education necessary to get into uh, a uni- in, into medical school, so and I found out about naturopathic medicine. So I ended up going. I applied to a school in Seattle called Bastyr. It's a four-year medical school that specializes in natural medicine, and so I went to Bastyr and I did the naturopathic medicine uh, program and I did the acupuncture program. And so right when I graduated, I met a doc who had written a book. She lived in D.C., and um, she had a waiting list in her office, and she invited me into her practice, and, and that's how I got here. So, and, you know, since I've been here, like, you know, naturopathic medicine has, you know, sometimes people call me, you know, on the West Coast, it's, you're legit. You know, like the state of Washington, even in 1994, I think they mandated that if you had a license given to you by the state, that it had to be covered under insurance. And so the naturopaths are included in the medical system. When I came here, it was the opposite. You know, it's kind of like you're not really a doctor doctor. And so in 2002, um, I think D.C. started licensing naturopathic physicians. And then just in 2016, I got Maryland started licensing naturopathic doctors. And so... For many years, I practiced writing. I mean, I've been in the area for 20 years, but um, I practiced under uh, as an acupuncturist in the state of Maryland. And so, and then in the last couple of years, you know, we have our naturopathic licensing. Finally, yes. So, and it's been good. I don't know. It's it's kind of like a good in the. We're kind of regulated by the MDs, so it's kind of like being regulated by someone who doesn't really 
respect and know what you do. Yeah, and kind so, of like being regulated by USDA? Yeah. So, <laughs> so you know, it's, it's maybe, that catch, like, yeah. is this a good thing or is it not? I mean, it's good that they consider us doctors now um, instead of just straight out quacks. Um, but, you know, my what I do gets validated to me by the experience of my patients, you know. And I know... You know, the, that's where the validity comes from. Because we live in a, a system now where science is almost turned into another form of superstition. And they use it against you in these weird kinds of ways. And so you, I don't think that we can expect to be validated, um, not because of, but because there's money on the table. Let me put it that way. Like, you know. You call it a d- disease care system. Right, because we live in a... So let me link the... You know, when I look at farming and what our role is here, you know, we live in a system where you have petrochemical companies on one end that, that make the fertilizers, that make the pesticides, that grow this food, and they're using a system that demineralizes and de... I don't know how you take the nutrients out, out of, of the, the soil. Yeah. And so, and at the same time, you have a medical system that doesn't recognize the effects that this process has on the population. So we live in a society of overfed and undernourished people. And diabetes is like the, the, the epitome of, of, of what that means because diabetes in Chinese medicine is considered a thirsting and wasting syndrome. So you have somebody who's who's really obese and overweight or whether it's slightly or to a large degree, but our idea is somebody who's overweight. But at the same time on a cellular level, if you were to get a shot of one of their cells, they're completely starving. They look like one of those African children back from the eighties on the commercial. You understand? And so even though people are overfed on the cellular level, they're starving. And so that's what we get when we look at this obesity epidemic that's going on in America. And so and their solution is to offer you more petrochemicals as the cure for whatever ails you. And so we never, you know, if you get hurt or you get, you know, you have a a injury or trauma or, you know, even with cancer, you know, when you need something taken out, go to the medical system but for chronic disease and really lifestyle generated illnesses i think natural medicine excels and so we need a medical system that is integrative and that we start to recognize like what the origins of some of these diseases are outside of just suppressing people you know with your patients how much time are you talking about how much does it get back to food I mean, somebody. Oh, so everybody who comes in, I spend uh, the, the, the first visit is a two hour visit. And then uh, the second visit, we spend an hour with them talking only. So we have people come in, they give us a five day diet diary and we sit down with them and we basically tailor a diet. We teach them energetics and we tailor the diet to the energetics of their disease. And so in Chinese medicine, energetics is really simple. You know, you have high blood pressure. High blood pressure is considered heat in the liver channel. 
So what we have to do is cool your liver. So the liver, the taste of the the taste associated with the organ liver is bitter. So grains, greens like dandelion and uh, arugula and all those things in the spring mix are really good for you. They're cooling. They're bitter. So we teach people the basic energetics of food. And for me, there's a, a bigger component, an energy component of, you know, we live in a world where success comes from, um, you know, productivity and efficiency. And so we don't, if things fall outside of that, then we don't value it. And so we have to, to put that aside. So we help people see beyond that paradigm. Like, are you living from the heart? <laughs> you know, are you doing what you love? Because that's where your real success comes from. And so we have to bring people out of that. You know, you wanted to be an artist, but your parents, you know, program you to be a lawyer. So how do you bridge that gap? Because if you can't, there's no no happiness. There's, there's, there's really no peace that's going to come for you until you can like start to at least tap into what's in your heart. So that's first. If people don't get there, then they can't get to the, you know, diet can be, you know, a lot of people get to diet and then it's just, uh, it's book information. So they, you know, it's like, oh, this is good for you. That's good for you. This is good for you. For me, when we start to, when our palate reaches our heart, when we start to listen to our bodies in an intuitive way and understand, you know, so diets, you know, I'm vegan, vegetarian, it works for me. I don't necessarily think that everybody should be vegan or wants to be vegan or it's even practical in that way. What I do try to lead people is to some clarity where they can discern the foods that are healthy for them without any kind of judgment. You understand? Because and so there's a lot of stuff that we need to get away from um, that has nothing to do with food that keeps us from eating the food that's really healthy for us. And so we try to like deal with that stuff, but at the same time, we introduce people to the foods that are healthy in terms of, like I said, the detox diet is just tricking people into you know, eating healthy. Like, eat this stuff, and I guarantee you, like, people, we try to please do this for a month. But if my thing is 21 days. If people, I've seen people switch in 10 days, but if people do uh, a whole foods diet for about three weeks and then they try to go back to the stuff that they were eating before, it usually makes them sick. And they'll see pretty quickly like, whoa, <laughs> like this is what that stuff does to you. And it's like, yes, it was always doing that. Yes, and now you realize <laughs> what, exactly. <laughs> and, but now you can, you're sensitive enough to realize what it's been doing the whole time. And so then they can, they'll be like, okay, I'm done. I can do something different. But the, my goal with diet is always to get people to that place where they're really eating from intuition. You taking new patients? Yeah, I always take new patients, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think I'm going to be in. Look, this has been amazing. I really appreciate you coming in. Um, I love what you're doing. I can't wait to try the rice you brought. All right. Uh, thanks for sharing this with us. All right. Thank uh, you for having me. And um, uh, I want to thank our listeners for, for checking out Origins here on Full Service uh, Radio. All right. Peace. Thanks for listening to this program on Full Service Radio, broadcasting and recording from the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. 
full-service radio programming can be accessed live and archived on fullserviceradio.org. Our talk programming is available on most podcast apps like iTunes and Stitcher, and our DJ sets are available on mixcloud.com slash fullserviceradio. Full Service Radio features over 30 weekly shows and over 50 local hosts covering every topic imaginable. If you want to be a guest or get involved, email us at info at fullserviceradio.org. Follow us on Twitter at fullserviceRDO, on Instagram and Facebook at Full Service Radio. Thanks for listening.